this time in our service each week, we give our attention to the scriptures, to the Bible, because we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. So we read it together and preach from it. China's going to come and lead us in a corporate reading. Let's all stand for the reading of God's word. You'll find the passage on the screen behind me. This morning's reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. When you read the Bible, you find that there's this spectrum where the gospel's at the center, and you and I often tend to drift toward one or the other side into sort of an error that's different from the gospel. Uh, so the, the places we tend to drift is either on the right towards legalism or on the left what you might call license or lawlessness. Uh, legalism is just fancy way of saying we're banking on obeying the law, and you can hear it, legalism, law. We're, we're banking on, we take pride in the fact that we keep the law. Or on the other hand is license where we give ourselves permission and freedom to disregard the law. We, we basically say we can do whatever we want. And, and all of us sort of have a bent within us. We tend to at different times uh, drift in one direction or the other. So for example, I grew up and I don't know if it was because I was the older child or what it was, but I had a bent towards legalism. I, I was the goody two-shoes. Right? And so what that meant is, not that I didn't sin, it's just that I made sure all my sinning was in secret because I wanted to make sure that publicly I looked like this really holy, moral, good person. And so I made sure that I dotted my I's and crossed my T's as best as I could. So for example, when we were kids, I remember that my younger sister and I, we would get in trouble, and dad would tell us something like, go sit on the couch. Don't get up until I tell you. And so I'd go sit on the couch, and then dad would forget and go to work. And, and dad would do a nine to five at work and I'd do a nine to five on the couch. And I would not get up. I kid you not, my grandmother had to call my dad at work and tell him, could you please tell your son it's okay to get off the couch because he's still sitting there, right? I, I sat there the whole time. My sister, younger sister, that weasel somehow always found a way to get out, right? Uh, my leg hurts, I need to go to the bathroom, whatever it was, she would get out and she'd be done. I would wet the couch before I got off the couch. That's how much I dotted my I's and crossed my T's, right? Uh, that's, that's sort of the bent. And, and when it comes to even Christianity, we've all got sort of a bent within us. And so perhaps for some of us, we tend to bend towards dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and we pride ourselves on our ability to keep the law. When you're legalistic, it's all about rules. The more rules, the better. Legalistic people find God's rules and they add rules to God's rules. 
because they pride themselves on their ability to keep the law. And deep down, the trust is not so much in God, it's an obsession with self. It's, it's this idea where your entire relationship with God is based on what you are able to do or what you are able to refrain from doing. It's all about your work and your relationship with God is constantly based on how you're making the grade. And in that world, you don't have love for God. What you have is an enormous love for self. On the other hand, there's lawlessness. And there, you use God also for self. But what you do is you presume upon his grace. And so you say, look, we're now in God, in the gospel. And so we can do whatever we want because there's always going to be more grace and always more mercy. And so what you do is you use the gospel as sort of your never-ending stream of get-out-of-jail-free cards. I can do whatever I want because at the end there's always going to be fresh grace and new mercy to meet me. And there too, it's not love for God. It's an enormous love for self. And what you do is use God for your ends. Well, not surprisingly, Jesus is going to tell his followers that they are not to be either legalistic or lawless. They're not to be goody-two-shoes or rebels. They're not to take pride in their ability to perform, nor presume on grace to throw out the law. They need to be something other. They need to be something different. What we've been doing over these weeks is we've been looking at Jesus' famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount. And there's a bunch of stuff that Jesus has already said that sort of surprises us, that catches us off guard. For example, Jesus has talked about the kingdom. And, he, and right off the bat, we said the first thing he says sort of catches you off guard. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? So the morally bankrupt, the people who are broke when it comes to spirituality and holiness, they're the ones who are blessed. Blessed are the, those who mourn and those who are hungry and thirsty. And last week we heard him say, you, you raggedy, first century, unimpressive bunch, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And the whole world is going to change upside down because of you. And so he's given us one thing after another that he said that surprises us. But perhaps more than what he said that surprises us is what he hasn't yet said that surprises us as well. I mean, there's all this kingdom of God talk and being in the kingdom and being citizens, and yet not once has he mentioned the law or obedience or righteousness or holiness or doing what God commands. And so you can imagine if we were sitting there on that mountainside listening to Jesus, we'd sort of be split in the room. The law folks of us, we'd start getting a bit nervous, right? What is all this talk of grace and grace and you get in by being bankrupt spiritually? When is he going to start talking about doing what's right and what's required and God's commands and God's law? And the rebel bunch of us, the lawless bunch of us, we would almost start getting excited, right? We'd say, look at this. Jesus is all for grace. It's just about being poor in spirit. That's all that's required. Well, Jesus is going to challenge both of us, the legalistic and the licensed folks, the lawless folks and the law-abiding pride in themselves folks. And Jesus is going to say to us, I want you to be about something other because I'm about something other. That's what we're going to learn in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. This is the passage we just read Corporately. So you can turn there in a Bible, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. While you turn there, let's take a moment and pray and ask for God's help. 
Our Father, this is your word. We have not come to expound our own opinions on anything, but to declare as faithfully and as closely as we can what you say in your word. So come, we'd ask, by your own spirit, and show us your word. Show it to our eyes so that we can see it. Show it to our minds so that we can understand it. Show it to our hearts so that we can receive it and believe it. And we might actually find joy in it. Come do a great work only by the power of your spirit. Through my mouth and your people's ears, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you drift towards license, if you drift towards the gospel's here so I can do what I want, there's always going to be fresh grace and mercy tomorrow. Listen, because Jesus speaks to you first. Listen to what he says in verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, listen. Apparently, there was some kind of misunderstanding about Jesus and who he was and what he had come to do and the nature of the kingdom of God that he was launching. And so Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God and it belongs to those who are broke spiritually, bankrupt morally, the poor in spirit. It's just a grace from God. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. And so there's sort of this misunderstanding throughout Jesus' life and ministry that creeps up that begins to say, maybe he doesn't care about the law. I mean, he, he seems to always be going against the religious leaders of his day. Maybe he doesn't care about Moses. Maybe he's starting something else or starting something different. Maybe he doesn't really care about obedience. And so you need to hear Jesus say as plainly and flatly and clearly as humanly possible, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Right? You, you don't need a degree to understand what he just said there. It's very plain for all of us to understand. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Right? Jesus is telling us who drift into lawlessness... Don't think for a moment that I've come to somehow get rid of God's commands, of, of the law and the prophets. Now, that phrase, law and prophets, is actually a phrase that means the Old Testament. It's those two words together meant the whole Old Testament scripture. For example, if I, if I talk to you about from your head to your toe, I've only named two parts, and yet we all know I mean the whole thing. In the same way, when he says the law and the prophets, he's saying, I'm talking about Genesis to Malachi, all the Old Testament scriptures. And he's saying to us, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament. I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. I haven't come to dismantle what you find in the first section of your Bible. And I think for, for a second, we should all hear that because some of us are ready to rip out the Old Testament. Right? This is the weird part of our Bible. This is the part with the weird stories and the fantastical, legendary stories and the irrelevant, sometimes strange and weird customs and laws. And we think we don't need that section of the Bible. God was sort of immature in junior high then, but then he grows up and the New Testament is mature and that's the part we want. Right? In fact, even in our world, in our culture, the part of the Bible that the world struggles with isn't the second section. It's the first section. What are you supposed to do with that section? And it'd be helpful to us to hear Jesus wasn't embarrassed by that section of the Bible. 
Jesus didn't blush. In fact, remember, the only Bible Jesus had was that first section. Right? The second section wasn't written till afterwards. And so it was over that first section that he said, I have not come to abolish anything from the law or the prophets. In fact, Jesus, hear me, loved his Bible. Have you ever thought of that? That Jesus read, studied, loved his Bible. To the point that in these crisis moments of Jesus' life, Bible came out of him. Because he had spent time putting Bible in him. Right? When you're pressed, when you're hard pressed, you don't have time for reflection and to come up with some great answer. What sort of in you spews out? Well, imagine you are nailed to a cross. I mean, you, you've been stripped nude. At that moment, you don't have time to put together a polished presentation, and yet scripture comes out of Jesus' mouth because it had been stored in Jesus' heart. When he's face to face with the devil in temptation, scripture comes out of his mouth because he had spent time storing it in his heart. We would do well to consider Jesus' love for and view of the scriptures. And he says to you, I have not come to abolish, to dismantle, to get rid of, to tear out the law and the prophets. In fact, he, he ups the stakes a bit and says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In fact, he says, so thoroughly have I not come to rid you of the old covenant, of the laws and the prophets, to the point that I want you to hear, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away before an iota, a dot. Listen, you know what a dot is. An iota was just a little I in the Greek alphabet. So he's saying, not even the little I, not even the dot above the little I, is going to pass from the law. In fact, in other translations, it'll say, not a jot, not a tittle. And, and what that word means is, if you can picture in your mind, uh, if you can see a small C in your mind, and then in your mind see a small E. You see that little tiny extra stroke that makes it from a C to an E? That's what a jot is. Like the smallest little stroke. And he's saying to you, the continents will pass away before that small stroke goes away. That you would sooner see the ocean evaporate and the sun fizzle out than the smallest little stroke from God's law pass away. This thing is permanent. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not an iota, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, if you are listening and if you're thinking, you almost want to go, what, wait, time out. Because you almost want to go, wait, I've read the Old Testament. And there's large portions of the Old Testament that seem to no longer matter. Large portions of the Old Testament that we don't seem to keep or practice. And, and, and what do you mean? In fact, one of the critiques you'll often hear from our world and culture is, come on, be honest. You Christians are always picking and choosing parts of the Bible that you want to keep. When it comes to some moral codes or laws about, uh, about certain things, you're all for what the Bible says. But then the Bible has all these other parts that you disregard. How are you going to keep some and not the other? Right? If you've read the Old Testament, you know there's certain foods you can't eat. No ham sandwiches, no shrimp cocktails, 
Nothing from Red Lobster. That whole thing is gone, right? Why don't you keep that? Or you know there's certain clothes you can't wear. You can't wear clothes made of two different cloths. So no polyester cotton blends. All of that is some kind of sin against God. There, there's all kinds of laws you don't keep. So how can Jesus here or his followers say that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets? But I want you to pay attention again to what he said. Listen closely because there's a word we'd be missing. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not an iota will pass from the law until what? Until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to abolish anything, but I certainly did come to fulfill everything. I didn't come to abolish anything, but I did come to accomplish many things. And what he's saying is, don't you see, the whole law and prophets, the whole Old Testament, was getting you ready for everything I would fulfill. Jesus is essentially saying what we've said here many times at Seven Mile Road, which is the whole Bible is about him. Your first section is getting you ready for him. And the second section is looking back and reflecting on him. The whole book is about him. And what he's saying in the law and the prophets is, I had come to fulfill all of this. I, I had come to fulfill the prophets. That is every prophecy. I mean, and you read, we're not studying through all of Matthew's gospel. Every prophecy, I mean, down to where he was born, who his mother would be, uh, what he would do, all of that. I've come to fulfill all of those prophecies. And all that you read in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in me. So, for example, when you read of the tabernacle, this strange tent that's plopped in the middle of the desert, and, and all the details around it, it's, it's this picture of God dwelling with his people. What was that doing? It was preparing you for when I would dwell among you. In fact, that's why John's gospel in John 1 will say, and the word that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. So that you make the connections and you go, the law and the prophets was getting me ready for Jesus, who would fulfill it all. Tabernacle, he tabernacled. In fact, we did a whole series here called Shadows, if you remember, where we looked through all these biographies of the Old Testament and we said, don't you see, every one of these stories wasn't just about the stories, it was getting you ready for Jesus. So when you read Adam, the man who disobeyed by the tree, and through his disobedience, all of humanity had plunged into sin. What was that getting you ready for? But the better Adam, the second Adam, who would obey at the tree. In fact, give his life on the tree so that all of humanity could be saved through him. Right? Every story, every prophecy, every law was going to be preparing you for Jesus. Jesus had come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In fact, even when it comes to the law, when you read the first section of your Bible, there's all these strange, particular, complex rules that Jesus has, that God has about worship, for example, in the Old Testament. What you can eat, what you can wear, what you can touch, what sacrifice you need to bring. And that entire system, hear me, the entire system was meant to communicate one thing. You're unclean, God's clean, you can't just come to him. Right? So foods made you unclean and clothes made you unclean. All to communicate to you, you're unclean. 
God's clean. You can't just come to him. But Jesus comes, and now we realize it's not food or clothes that make us unclean, and it's not sacrifice that will make us clean. The clean one came to us who were unclean, and he became unclean so that we might become clean. This is what Jesus did. And so all of it was fulfilled in him. So now, you know what? I don't need food laws. I don't need polyester cotton laws. Because I get that this was preparing you for Jesus. And now that he's come, he's fulfilled it. So much so that I can't keep some of the Old Testament laws anymore. To do so wouldn't be right anymore. Because I know the whole story. So for example, if I came next Sunday with a goat, and I sacrificed it up here for my sins, that wouldn't be right anymore to do. Because what Christians are doing are not picking and choosing what parts of the Bible they want to keep and ignore. It's that Christians are reading the whole book in light of Jesus. In light of what he accomplished. In, what, in light of what he fulfilled. Because that's what Jesus told us to do. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And so there's all kinds of ceremonial laws and civil laws we don't keep. Not because we're being inconsistent, but because we're looking through Jesus to read all the scriptures. But when it comes to a bunch of moral laws about who we are to be and the kind of people we need to be, uh, that we're to be generous and love our neighbor and forgive our enemies, that we're to care for one another, and all those commands about uh, how we're to behave morally, Jesus wants us to hear again, I didn't come to abolish any of those. I didn't come to take away even the tiny stroke. I haven't come to abolish any of them. I've come to fulfill them all. And in fact, that's what Jesus does. For no one loves God and loves people the way that Jesus did, perfectly fulfilling the law and the prophets. This is why Jesus will go on to say, look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's what he's saying. If I have not come to abolish even the smallest stroke of God's commandments, then why would I imagine that my citizens, my followers, would relax even one of the least of my commandments? Right? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If the king has not relaxed the least of these laws, why would his citizens do that? So here's what Jesus is saying. Especially if your bent is towards lawlessness. If your bent is towards, we can do what we want because there's more grace coming. Hear me. Jesus did not come and die to give you more boldness for your sin. Jesus didn't come and bleed so that you'd have an easier time sinning. Jesus didn't give his life and live it perfectly and die sacrificially so that you wouldn't be bothered about frolicking in sin. God's law is not going anywhere. And the relationship between the law and the gospel is this. What the law is supposed to do is drive you to the gospel and then the gospel is supposed to free you to obey the law. Hear that connection again. What's supposed to happen is I read God's commands about the kind of person I'm supposed to be. And I begin to realize I'm not that kind of person. Here's where God wants me to be and who God wants me to be. Here's where I am. That gap 
where I despair of myself is supposed to drive me to the only one who can fill the gap and meet the gap. Right? That's where I need Jesus, the cross, because this is where I am, this is where God wants me to be. I can't get there. And so what the law does is it drives me to the gospel. But then when I get the gospel and I understand this Jesus came, he had no gap, he lived it perfectly, and yet he died for my gap, then it changes my heart to say, now I want to keep the law. It frees me to obey the law. The law drives you to the gospel. The gospel frees you to obey the law. That's how it works. right? God's law is not going anywhere. But listen to me, that's a good thing. I know at times it doesn't sound like that. It's like we just finished telling the kids. We love a life, and we imagine that the best life is a life where we can do whatever we want. And we hear words like law as restriction and bondage and boundaries, and yet God's coming to us and telling us, I've designed the law so that you might have life, so that you might have joy. Right? We think that we are most free when we're outside God's law. We're not. We're in bondage. God designed life. He knows how it works. He's shown us the way to life. And it's through his law. Right? It's by keeping his law that you actually find life and joy. It's like we told the kids, you imagine you're most free doing whatever you want, and yet you find it's by the certain restrictions and restraints that you find true life. It works that way in any game and in any sport. For example, this afternoon some of you are going to play volleyball. When you play volleyball, you know what you find? There's all kinds of rules. Like you can't hit the net, and you can't bump the ball four times, and you can't hit it twice in a row, and it can't go outside the bounds. If you came this afternoon and said, I don't want rules, so you hit it wherever you want, and as many times as you want, and, and you run into the net, listen, that, that could be anything, but it's not volleyball. Right? It's the rules that make volleyball volleyball. And in fact, those boundaries are what free you to play the game as it was meant to be played. Otherwise, it's chaos of 15 people running around. Right? Those boundaries free you. A, a train could be very free on a beach and go nowhere. Or it could be bound to the rails and go somewhere. It's, it's in being restrained to the rails that it actually gets to be most free. Does that make sense? You could free it onto the beach, and it won't be anything it was meant to be. Or you can bind it to the rails, and it's actually most free. God has not come to destroy your lives through his law. He's come to give you the life you have been designed to live, to give you maximal joy. This is why Jesus will come and say, the devil is the one who came to kill and to steal and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. And hear me, because I need this. I, I've said this before, and yet this week I was reminded, I need to constantly believe that God's law was designed for my joy. He is not out to ruin my life or to spoil my fun or steal my laughter. He has come to put me on the rails so that I can be most free. So that I don't squander my life not going anywhere on a beach. Right? God is for you. He really is. This is why when the Old Testament people read the law, I mean, they say some of the strangest things. David will say, I, I love your law more than honey, more than the best food. 
When you read the Old Commandment, do you feel like licking your fingers like, oh, that's good. <laughs> and David's going, when I read your law, it is better than the choicest wine, better than the best food. It's sweet to my taste like honey. Why? Because he gets something that we need to get. God's law is for your joy. That's why Jesus didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them and to move you to keep them. Right? David will say, as we read at the opening of our service today, Psalm 16, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Did you hear that? You have made known to me the path of life. That is, you've shown me the tracks. You've shown me what life is supposed to look like. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The life you want, which is pleasure forevermore and fullness of joy. That sound like a bad deal to anyone? No. Fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore is found in God's presence, in the path to life that he's shown. Which is why Jesus is coming to us and saying, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And therefore, my followers, you are not to relax one of the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same. God help you if your influence on another is to cause them to relax the law as well. For you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Obedience is not optional, said Maro. In fact, that's why we've chosen the Sermon on the Mount. In this season, I think God wants to mature us as a church and remind us grace is great, but grace prompts us to obey. Obedience isn't optional. Obedience matters. In fact, that's how you know you're a disciple. Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, didn't say, go into the world and make decisions. He said, go into the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Because that's what a disciple is. It's one who obeys. So, to those of us who are bent towards lawlessness, Jesus speaks to us. But he says one last word to those of us who are bent towards lawfulness and legalism. And with this will end. Listen to what he says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Till now, the law folks are getting real excited. That's right, go get them, Jesus. Go tell those lawless folks that they can't just disobey. But then Jesus turns to the legalism folks and says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you too will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now hear me. Think of who Jesus is talking to. We're 2014. We've read the Bible. We... We've known the scriptures. We know Jesus. So when we read the story of Pharisees and scribes, if you have any familiarity with the Bible or around Christianity, you know they're the bad guys in the movie. So you know immediately Jesus is opposed to them. If you were standing there in the first century on that mountainside and Jesus was talking, you wouldn't have known that. And so think of what Jesus just said. If your righteousness doesn't exceed, isn't better than the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Imagine how that would have hit you. Because in your day, nobody's righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If they're not getting in, who on earth is getting in? Because the scribes and the Pharisees in that day were the people who knew the Bible backwards and forwards. 
I mean, they, they had stored large portions, I mean, books of the Bible by heart. They were the Bible guys. It's like in your day, we know of popes and pastors and missionaries, the religious people with the degrees. And if Jesus were to say to you, unless you know me better than the pastors and the popes and the priests, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, your righteousness has to exceed that of your pastors. These guys would have heard that and said, if they don't get in, who gets in? These guys had read the Bible and studied the Bible and knew the Bible and, and obeyed everything perfectly. And Jesus is saying, here, that means that if your righteousness has to exceed theirs, that means that there's a right way to do what's right and a wrong way to do what's right. Hear me. The, the Pharisees did was was right but they did it the wrong way. That means that Jesus' sermon is so penetrating. I mean, he won't let you off the hook to say, I'm not even just interested in you doing the right thing. I need you to do it the right way and for the right reasons. Jesus is saying, I'm not even just concerned about obedience. I need to know the motives behind your obedience. You see, the Pharisees had a righteousness, but what was their righteousness? The Pharisees' problem was not their behavior but it was their motives. Their obedience was visible to all, but it didn't stem from a heart that had loved for God. There was nothing wrong with their obedience. Their performance was perfect, and yet Jesus was getting underneath to their motives, to the point that, remember, Jesus has to tell the story of the prodigal son. Right? Why does he tell that story? It says because there's a bunch of Pharisees listening, and so for their sake, he tells a story. There's a bunch of sinners around Jesus, but then the Pharisees come. And so for their sake, Jesus tells the story of the dad who's got the two kids. And the younger, maybe it's an older brother, younger brother thing. Like my young sister Weasel, this younger brother was the rebel in the story, right? And ran away with dad's wealth and spent it on women and wine and was a prodigal. Ended up in a pigsty. Remember the older brother in the story? He did everything right. Dotted his eyes, crossed his T's, never got off the couch when dad told him. He was perfect. He had never gone out. He had never thrown a party, never wasted his dad's resources. He was perfect. And yet what happens at the end of the story? The prodigal comes back weeping, is inside the house partying. And the end of the story, the last scene, is the older brother outside pouting in anger. And, and Jesus says, do you get that? The sinners are in the kingdom of God and the righteous guy is standing outside. And he's angry. Angry because his father owed him. Because that's what legalism does. Legalism says, God owes me. Don't you see my resume and all the things that I've done? How dare you show grace to him in light of all the things that I've done? And Jesus is coming and saying to them, listen to me, you're obeying but not for love for God. You're obeying for the wrong reasons, and that will not do in the kingdom of God. Right? The, the Pharisees obeyed externally, but they ignored internal. They were perfect out here, corrupt in here, which is why Jesus will look at them and say, you're whitewashed tombs. What's a whitewashed tomb? It's, it's a beautiful tombstone on the outside. It's rotting bones on the inside. You're a putrid, decaying mess on the inside, but you put on the best outside. And Jesus says, that will not do, right? The Pharisees were experts at behavior modification with no heart transformation. That will not do. 
Right? Jesus says to them, you guys obey the letter of the law down to the smallest stroke, the little E and C. You obey down to that stroke while you miss the whole spirit of the law. You miss the whole point while you keep the tiniest detail. Right? This is why Jesus will say to them at one point, do you know what you guys do? You strain a gnat while you swallow a camel. Both of these are unclean animals. And in their world before biology and all the rest, this was the smallest and the biggest unclean animal. And he's saying, look, you're the kind that if a little gnat falls into your teacup, you'll strain it out because you're going to pay attention to the details. While you swallow a stinking camel down. You swallow the whole thing whole because you keep attention to the smallest point and you miss the spirit of the law. One of my favorite examples of that is in John's Gospel. John 18 tells us that the Pharisees had arranged for Jesus' trial. Now that itself should tell you something. They are about to hate and kill God while they obey God. Right? So they've arranged for his trial. And they've done it overnight in the midnight hour so that no one could have real justice. It's this kangaroo court, mock trial, fake witnesses, all the rest. Total injustice. They beat Jesus in the face. They beat God in the face. And then they bring him, because they can't kill him and they want to kill him, they bring him to the Roman, Pilate, because the Romans have power to kill, they don't have power to kill. And then John adds this tiny little verse that says, but they wouldn't go into Pilate's house because that would make them unclean. Don't you love that? They have beaten Jesus in the face. They are arranging for his unjust death, but they're not going to go in Pilate's house because then they'd be unclean. That's what Pharisees do. That's this kind of righteousness. The kind of righteousness that keeps the tiniest law, but your heart has no love for God. And Jesus is saying, not in my kingdom. Not lawlessness in my kingdom, but also not legalism. Not the kind of obedience that is stacking up points so that somehow God owes you. Rather than you in love indebted to God. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So seven mile road, hear me. If you're here, and if you're in a season where you are presuming on God's grace, where there's always another get out of jail free card tomorrow, so it doesn't matter what you say or what you do or how you behave, would you hear Jesus say to you, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not an iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. But if you're here and you're banking on your resume and you take great pride in your goodness and your relationship with Jesus is based on your works, would you hear him say to you, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do come to Jesus now and we do thank you because he kept the law perfectly and died for our gap because we weren't who you called us to be. So we pray that our lack of holiness and righteousness and morality would make us poor in spirit and drive us to the gospel. But then seeing the love of God for us, we pray that the gospel 
would free us to obey the law. That we would not be lawless or legalistic, but that we would be obedient disciples of Jesus Christ, whose salvation has been earned by him. Come minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.